Greetings, Minecrafters, and welcome to part two of It's Not Me, It's OCT, or Obsessive Compulsive Thinking. Last week, we sort of discussed how anxiety is a brain thing, which means right off the bat that it's not your fault any more than having brown or blue eyes. We also talked about how anxiety lands on a spectrum, just like most things in life, right? Sexuality, ability to ski, cook Italian, most things are not just one end or the other. There's a whole middle, and it's the same with anxiety, with one end being someone who maybe is a little nervous on some days, and the other end being someone who has a difficult time getting out of the house for an interview or out of bed to get across campus to a class. We also discussed our first party trick or strategy for managing anxiety. And just a reminder or reminder disclaimer that when I use the phrase party trick, it's not in any way to minimize the struggles of of someone who has anxiety or any other difference in wiring. Uh, But exactly it's meant to do the opposite, which is to normalize this. And that these party tricks will work for most people on this spectrum from the from the one end of being a little nervous, having some intrusive monkey mind thoughts, all the way to the other end. And the only exception really is that small sort of wedge on the extreme end where someone is temporarily, you know, crippled or, or debilitated by by anxiety, or later on we get into a depression, because that obviously may need professional help some sort of intervention, therapy, and or medication. And the strategies we discuss through this podcast series are in no way meant to take the place of that. They will, however, work for most people. And we will actually talk about a couple more strategies uh, for you today. Often in my classes when we discuss anxiety, I'll start out with what's called a go-around. And I ask students to just kind of respond to whatever word it is, without thinking. So, yes, it is weird to ask college students not to think, but there are certain occasions when this actually works. So I'll start on one end, or sometimes the middle, so the people on the ends don't want to not sit there anymore, and I'll just throw out the word anxiety. And right away, they go around, sometimes two or three times. They'll start out and they'll say, overwhelmed, fearful, jittery, tight in the chest, unable to concentrate, fogged over, exhausted, fatigued, edgy, hard to breathe. Then we'll do another one, and I'll ask them about how their body feels when they feel anxious. And right away, they come off with headaches, nausea, stomach crampiness, pins and needles, sweaty palms, tightness in the shoulders. You know, I then explain, too, if you want to know what's going on in your mind, Just ask your body. You know, and then we stop and ask, who wants to feel like this? And they all kind of look at me perplexed. And I'll say, well, okay, yeah, if you're Michael Phelps, you know, about, you know, waiting for the gun to go off in the Olympics, okay. Or if you're an actor on stage and it's opening night, a little bit of that might help us, you know, fine tune and focus. Other than that, who wants to feel like this? And the answer other than those, you know, sort of examples, exceptions, is, you know, no one. In the last episode, we also discussed how we come to arrive at this place 
of wanting to make a change. And most often it's because we get sick and tired of being sick and tired. As anxiety is exhausting and often, as mentioned, my students even use the word fatigue, which is obviously worse than exhausted. It's being chronically exhausted. And that phrase uh, comes from the 12-step programs. Uh, and I have to say, I, growing up with a parent in recovery for alcoholism, I spent a lot of time, not a lot of time, I spent some time you know, at Alcoholics Anonymous going to the anniversaries and hearing people's stories. And I can't say enough about what a good experience that was. It was just the le- lessons in real life, you know, just lessons in real life. And I love the one-liners um, from Alcoholics Anonymous AA because they are just really honestly work for all of us. And one of them, that that idea of, you know, when we've had enough, we get sick and tired of being sick and tired. We just don't want to be exhausted anymore. And we therefore kind of pushed into making a change. Arriving at this place where we are ready to make a change, we are then realizing that since anxiety is clearly not going to accommodate us, that we need to learn to accommodate it. And that in order to get this monkey off our backs, this thing we call the monkey mind, we need to learn to retrain the brain so as to control our response to anxiety. She talked about worries echoing in our heads like monkey chatter and how relief seems to be just beyond our reach. She also says that A high tolerance for anxiety frees us from the tyranny of answering the monkey's call to action. But building this tolerance will not happen if you close down to insulate yourself against feelings. You'll need to open up and feel whatever is necessary, surrendering control completely in order to build resilience. We need to open up and welcome whatever emotions arise. We need to let them run their course. Well, this may be difficult. The more you do it, the better you will get at it. We talked about this during the last episode, that whatever we practice, we inevitably get good at. I'm a skier, so I like to use that example. Practice skiing, practice soccer, practice playing the piano. I sometimes joke with my students, even if we practice robbing banks, we eventually get good at it. Truth right there, right? This is where we will begin to talk about mindfulness and what Jennifer Shannon talks about as being the welcoming breath. She says that the next time you notice yourself feeling anxious, stop for a moment and pay attention to where you're experiencing the most discomfort. Is it in your chest or is it in your stomach? Does it make your headache or your heart palpitate? Once you have located where that discomfort is, begin to breathe intentionally into that part of your body. Imagine greeting that discomfort with a stream of fresh, healing air. This is your welcoming breath. Continue to breathe with the intention to welcome rather than resist. Each inhalation supports the space for this uncomfortable feeling to exist. 
With each exhale, let go of any control you may be hanging on to. As you continue with this welcoming breath, you will notice that your feelings will change. They may intensify, decrease, or move to a different part of your body. Other feelings may arise. If that happens, welcome them too. Whatever happens, just keep breathing and welcoming, allowing the feelings to be there, change, stop, and even start again. So this idea of letting go can really seem counterintuitive, right? You think about it, we're feeling anxious, all amped up, really pissed off. What we typically want to do is just dig in. We want to grab on, latch on, kind of reside there. When in the world of mindfulness, what we're asking to do is just kind of not judge those thoughts, let them roll. And an old Chinese proverb says, that which we resist will persist. That is just so true. I know that, um, of course, there's, you know, the old kind of cliche out there, like, not really cliche, but just figure of speech. We say, uh, you know, don't give any energy to it. When we give energy to something, kind of keep, you know, investing in it, that whatever that is, typically snowballs and gets worse. In fact, Carl Jung, psychoanalyst, talked about um, that which we resist will persist also. And even and also said that not only does it persist, but actually grows and gets worse. This is actually one of the main reasons that I like mindfulness so much as opposed to other types of meditation because of this non-judgment piece. You know, there are all kinds of meditations out there and certainly they're all good. It's kind of like, you know, picking out a pair of shoes or something. Whatever's the best fit for you, certainly this is, you know, all good for well-being. Mindfulness, however, goes with you wherever you go. It's really just about being in the moment and that non-judgment piece. So, Whereas other meditations often are trying to create a, a you know thought vacuum, you know, or a space that's sort of void of thought. Mindfulness sort of does the opposite. It just allows for those thoughts to roll through. So someone who's you know having an anxious day, all of a sudden an anxious thought whips through, and rather than judging ourselves, oh, there I go again. There goes my anxiety. No. Instead, mindfulness just says, okay, I'm having an anxious thought. Welcome to the human race. Who the hell cares? You know, we're having an anxious moment or an anxious day or an anxious week. It's okay. Just let it roll through. John Kabat-Zinn also talks about this idea of welcoming, you know, thoughts as kind of bring it on idea. And John Kabat-Zinn, of course, is a mindfulness guru. Uh, very famous, who runs a pain clinic in Boston. And he kind of talks about, you know, these thoughts as kind of like unwanted guests. If you're in a neighborhood and let's just say uh, you have this really chatty neighbor, not a bad person, but just kind of chatty, maybe a little annoying. And you're ready to have this kind of little partay with your friends and you've got the artichoke dip out and all that. Or maybe it's kind of a bunker in night with a Netflix binge and you're all ready with a handful of your of your friends, and you can see this person coming up, you know, the street or, or up the hallway of the dorm, and you say, oh, no, you don't want to hurt their feelings, but you really don't 
you're not really in for a chat fest and to be annoyed and you're all ready with your, you know, your artichip dip and your, and your movie. So everybody shuts the lights off, pulls the curtains, shut the door, dive under the bed, hide the artichoke dip, all that energy going into avoiding, you know, this, this, this sort of unwanted guest. Well, instead, you know, John Kabat-Zinn says, instead of, you know, going through all of that, you know, it open the door, open the welcome mat, open the door and, and just, you know, kind of entertain this person for a few minutes, kind of like the unwanted anxious thought. And then, you know, let that person just kind of roll through. This is much easier, takes less energy and will dissipate more quickly than all of that resistance. Once again, what we practice, we inevitably get good at. So if we are practicing being in the present moment and not judging ourselves, we get good at it. And when we get good at not judging ourselves, sort of the added bonus is we very naturally get good at not judging other people. So I begin each and every one of the classes I teach, regardless of what what class it is, with one minute of mindfulness. And so day one, we have to kind of, you know, brainstorm what we, what they think mindfulness is. And of course we start off with the breath part. And right away when I ask, you know, why is this important? Of course, college students revert to the obvious, which is it keeps us alive. Okay, good. Truth right there. And when we do um, a more intentional breath, a big, deep, breath, kind of like I, when I say to them, I said, breathe in like you got tight abs, this really deep breath. It also has this neurological effect of returning the mind to the body. This means that there is an immediate return of the mind to the body from, you know, next Tuesday when you have a paper or a test, or let's say it's a season grown up and you've got a job interview or a big meeting with your boss or a confrontation or whatever brings our mind out of there or from, you know, out of five years ago when somebody said whatever to you or did whatever to you and re- immediately returns your mind into your body and yourself into this moment. So then I'll ask my students, as far as anxious thoughts, where do these stem from? Past present, future, or some combination of these. And most often, they come up with some combination of these. And then I'll say, no. Anxious thoughts come from the past or the future. So if you are 100% invested, okay, diagnosed or not, 100% invested in being in this present moment, not 99.9, 100 then I, I, don't, I won't see any anxiety unless you're being beaten with a spiked club in this classroom, which I don't see. There will be no anxiety if you are 100% invested in this moment. So using this intentional breath, as one of my students used to say, with puffy lungs, okay, this intentional breath is our party trick number two. I also let my students know that this is a a trick that I use a lot of days as well. If I just have a full, busy head, this is something I use because you can be in the middle of a class, a board meeting, a really boring conversation, you know, whatever, and just take a big, deep 
breath and there will be an immediate, immediate relief from this busy monkey mind. Now, on a super busy monkey mind day, you might have to do this frequently. However, it will work because it's, it's neurons. It's an immediate neurological response of returning a mind from next week or next year or last year or whatever back into this moment right now. Another strategy that works for me, and just on any old day, it can be a busy monkey mind day or it can just be any old day. On my way into campus, I'll pick, you know, a tree or a stop sign. And I'll just say to myself, the next, you know, 100 feet to that stop sign, I am going to be mindful. I'm just going to breathe and walk to the stop sign. And it might be 30 seconds, 55 seconds or whatever. And it ends up being a wonderfully peaceful and serene experience. Then, of course, if I'm on a roll, I'll pick the next stop sign or the end of the block or a car or whatever that's parked and and do it again for another, you know, 30 to 60 seconds. And I'll tell you, just one minute of mindfulness to start the day is really something. It gets the day off to a fabulous start. So this welcoming sort of bring it on attitude with the monkey mind, Jennifer Shannon sort of works back into our example of how the brain is like a toddler and even suggests that we ask for more. This is also, of course, um, a Buddhist thing, you know, kind of the bring it on with with adversity for spiritual growth. Well, she says something very similar when she says, Anyone who has tried reverse psychology knows that it's very much like a dare. The parents who tell the child who is throwing a tantrum, go ahead and scream as loud as you want. It better be prepared for some earth-shattering screams. You want the monkey to learn that hammering you with more negative feelings will go unrewarded. She says... You can control your response to anxiety. You can open your body and make room for it to run its course with your breath. You can ask for more of it to train yourself and the monkey that you can handle it. When you control your response to the monkey, it loses its control over you. So getting back to this toddler example, it kind of brings us back to our discussion from last episode that It's all about extinguishing an unwanted behavior in a toddler or extinguishing unwanted thoughts of the monkey mind. And the quickest way to extinguish a thought or behavior is to completely 100% ignore it. As we said before, there are other ways, let's say to manage a toddler, you know, screaming for M&Ms in the supermarket, they may work but they weren't work as well or as fast. Remember also that our brain is trying to get our attention. And as amazing as it is, it is also lazy and an organ of habit. This is when you can sort of in party trick number one, which is to say, not today, maybe tomorrow. Remember also that once you make the decision to shift 
out of these more negative ways of thinking and to calm the monkey mind into more positive ways of thinking, uh, the, it's going to get worse before it gets better because the brain is going to throw its own little tantrum, just like the toddler in the grocery store with the M&Ms. The minute you kind of ignore it, it's going to get louder, throw around a few fists in an attempt to get M&Ms. Or with our example of the negative thinking, it's going to want to say, hey, 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 wait, this time on the way home from work, this is when we self-deprecate. It's when we talk about all the ways we're not enough, all the ways that we're going to fail, all the fears, all the everything. This is our time together. Pay attention to me. Pay attention to me. Pay attention to me. And again, you respond with not today, maybe tomorrow. And remember that the maybe tomorrow part is really, really important because the brain, much like a toddler, doesn't want no for an answer. The brain wants an appointment. It wants us to pay attention to it. And again, the brain's going to resist and say, no, no, no. This time in the car, this time in the shower, when we're all alone here, this is when we are going to catastrophize and think about all the ways, you know, all the all the ways things can go bad badly for us. The, 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 the fears, I might, I might lose my job. I might not be able to retire. I might not this. I might not that. No, no, no. This is our time together. By including the not tomorrow part, the brain will eventually say, well, okay, fine. As long as you promise that, you know, tomorrow on the way home from work or across campus or whatever, that you promise we're going to engage in every fear that we talk about all the time so that we're completely terrified by the time we get back to our dorm room or pull in the driveway from work. Or that we're completely convinced that we're not smart enough, tall enough, thin enough, or whatever enough. You promise, right? You promise. Tomorrow at five o'clock, we're on, right? That's my time, right? And then, of course, the next day you say, not today, maybe tomorrow. This is tried and true, something I've done myself for years. Like a good parent, if you practice this consistently every day, it will get easier. Just like anything we practice, eventually we have to put less energy into it to get to the same place. Also, like a good parent, it's about letting it be known who's in charge. Learning to become the boss of your brain is a one-way ticket to a free mind and living your best life. Just making the decision to make this shift has you well on your way. Stay tuned for part three of It's Not Me, it's OCT, or my obsessive compulsive thinking, also known as the monkey mind. This is Kimberly Quinn, signing off from Northern Vermont. Have a mindful day. Mm-hmm.